man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in lawsuit the Lord does not approve, who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, for 
without respite until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head, and I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all the vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord. According to the work of their hands, you will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them under your heavens, O Lord. The word of the Lord. They did this in the first service, and I thought it was just fascinating, just the, the irony, the juxtaposition of all the destruction and curse and failing and disaster and everything that's being read. And in the background, the Muzak is great as thy faithfulness. That, that's the undercurrent. That, that's the truth of the whole situation. And we come to Lamentations, and we have chapters 1 and 2, which were pretty depressing last week. And we have chapters 4 and 5, which are going to be pretty depressing next week. But in the middle of that is the pivot point of chapter 3, which in the middle of all the difficulties still, His mercies are new every morning, and great is His faithfulness. It's the pivot point. Archimedes said, give me a place to stand, and I can move the world. This is the fulcrum. This is the pivot point. This is the place to stand. That God's faithfulness, His mercies, they never end. His love is overwhelming, even in the middle of the destruction that we read about in Lamentations. So we're going to be looking in chapter 3 today. It's nearly 600 years, 600 B.C. And Jerusalem, the city of God, has been surrounded by the Babylonians. Um, the, the Jews had been warned literally for centuries that judgment was coming if they did not repent. And worst of all, the leaders did not repent. The leaders are the ones who are coming up with evil and vileness that the common people weren't even thinking of and it had never been done before. God comes to the leaders and said, if you don't repent, there's going to be judgment. And God had given them hundreds of years to repent and they had refused. What else can he do? You know, children who have trained their parents to count before they do what they say they're going to do, even they, at some point, get up and do what they're told. If for no reason other than to make their mom and dad stop that terrible, horrible counting. One, two, sounds so ominous. But Israel, who is God's blessed, chosen, delivered, placed, people placed at the crossroads of the ancient world, when God came to them and said, listen, you need to repent from some things. They looked at him and said, no, we're not going to do it. What else is God supposed to do? And friends, this isn't the first time God's given someone space to repent. He's given them centuries. All the way back in Genesis, there are three covenants that God made with Abraham. 
three covenants. And the second one is in Genesis 15, where he said, you see the land that you're camping on? I'm going to give you this land, Genesis 15, 18. To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. But it's not going to happen until, verse 13, 400 years. Can't you imagine Abraham sitting there? He has his brand-new Coleman tent set up and got the cook stove going, and he's all ready to go. And God says, 400 years, and he goes, I'm here. I'm here. Why, why don't we just do this now? Why do we have to wait 400 years? I mean, I'm here. Can we do? Can you, can you just flip the switch now? God says, no, it's going to be 400 years because... Genesis 15, 16, I'm waiting for something. I'm waiting because the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. Here are people who don't even know God. He's giving them 400 years to repent. How long is he supposed to wait? He gives them 400 years, and when they finally say no continually, he says, okay. God sent Jonah down to Nineveh, and we're familiar with that story, and when he had the first foam blubber mattress ride, he got down to Nineveh. Some of you will get that on the way home. Some of you got it, and it ain't funny anyway. But anyway, he got down to Nineveh, and he said, look, God's sending judgment. And what did they do? They repented. They repented, and God said, okay, it's not my heart. You heard it just a minute ago. It's not my heart to destroy people. It's not in my heart to bring punishment and judgment. You've repented. I will forgive you. And he relented of his punishment. And he gave him another 150 years to walk in this thing, to walk in his forgiveness, to walk in a relationship with him. And 150 years, that's a long time. Do you realize 150? I bet there's not one of us. There might be one, two, in here whose grandparents were even alive 150 years ago. We had one woman die a year, maybe two years ago, that her grand, both of her granddads, both of her granddads, and she knew both of them, had fought in the Civil War, one for the North and one for the South. She said it was really quiet at Thanksgiving. <laughs> 150 years, that's a long time. God had given Nineveh 150 years, and at the end of that time, they refused to continue walking in relationship with him. What can he do? He sends an oracle concerning Nineveh through a fellow named Nahum. He said, judgment's here. God had given them time and time and time. And, you know, you, you, the thing about the, you remember the typist in um, Saving Private Ryan? Remember the little wiener guy? He's the typist. He fought the war of the typewriter. He, he only killed one guy in that whole movie. You know who it was? It was the German who said, oh, I'm so sorry, I won't do it again. And he fought. No, he's asking for to repent. He's, he's saying he's repent. Let's let him go. He let him go. And then later in the movie, after the guy killed Tom Hanks, don't kill Tom Hanks. Typist is the one that shot him. You, I gave you space. I, get, I forgave you, and this is what you do? Friends, God has given us hundreds of years here. And they have refused to repent, and then he puts it on the back burning, just lets that soup simmer for 400 more years between the end of Malachi and the introduction of John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, when he comes to him and says, Repent, for the kingdom of, his, of heaven is at hand. That's the message that he gets. 400 years to think about this. He shows up and says, repent. And do you think they repented? <laughs> Not on your tin type, girly girl. There's your movie reference. See if you can get that one. How much time, how much time are we supposed to demand that God give us before we actually decide to repent? We get 
irritated because he only counted to 400 years. I was going to do it. Friends, God is not the whipped, permissive parent who's goaded by their children into allowing them into every form of nonsense that the kid can come up with. And as the siege around Jerusalem continues, Babylon's, they're doing great out there, man. Up in town, they're starving to death. They're eating boiled donkey heads and baby entrails. Outside in Babylon, they're eating Twinkies. They have a 700-year shelf life. They're eating Twinkies. I wonder if they took any of the empty wrappers and put them in a catapult and said, hey, look what we got. Threw it up into town. They're starving to death up in town. Siege work is a terrible way to, to, uh, to commit warfare. 700 years later, later, the Romans did something very similar. This is Masada. It's 1,500 feet above ground level right next to the Dead Sea. Dead Sea is nearly 1,500 feet below sea level, so the top of Masada is like 50 feet above sea level, and it's 1,500 feet tall. And the Romans have this thing staked out. They could have just used this gondola, see, to get up there. They didn't do it. See all this, this windy back and forth? That's the Israeli troops who every, uh, who every Israelite, uh, 18 years of age and older, male or female, is required to serve in the military, and they go to the top of Masada, where a 1,000 of them were slaughtered in 73 A.D. And they take the oath. They, t- they recite the motto, the state motto, which is never forget. How's that for nationalized offense and bitterness? And they were walking down that day, and so we took the gondola up, and from the top you can look out to the east, and you're going to see the Dead Sea out there. That's the Dead Sea. And beyond it's the mountain range. It's just a little bit north of here is where Mount Nebo is, where Moses was. But you see that square right there and that square there. That's where the Ro- that's two of the Roman camps. There's another great big one right there. They were all over the place. That's looking to the east, and if you look off to the west, you're going to see this great big one here, and there were others up in these hills where the Romans had besieged the place. Nobody came in or out for three years, as they tell the story in Israel today. And during that time, just to make sure that, you know, Internet was down, Romans wanted to make sure they knew what was going on in other parts of the country. So if they found out that the sister or sister-in-law, one of them up there, had had a baby, up like up to Jerusalem, they wanted to make sure they had a chance to visit. So they went and got the baby and put it in a catapult and threw it up to the top of Masada for them to visit. That went for three years. Until finally the Romans decided to build, go back one if you would. They built this this ramp over here on the left. Go to that next one if you would, Troy. I'm sorry. Next one after that. They built that ramp right there, and that's the means by which they got to the top of the city. There's been an earthquake since then, and that ramp has fallen. But when the Jews knew that they were coming, they killed all of them. They all committed suicide except for two. And you think about three years of being besieged. Three years just waiting to die. In that amount of time, there are going to be some birds, there are going to be some deaths, and there are some self-appointed guardians in that picture preview. These are the only self, that, the only room that they sit on is the room that the dead bodies were in for three years. Imagine that. And when the Romans finally got up there, they found there was food and water enough for seven years of subsistence. They could have lived another seven years up there. But in protest, they committed suicide. And the lament... The lament that Jeremiah writes, this is the exact same thing that we see in, in later form with the Romans here. The, the lament that he writes, this is what's going on. They're starving to death. They don't have seven years provision left. They are starving to death in there. And the lament that he writes, he's not the only one. There are some others observing. 
there's a little kid running around. He's maybe hobnobbing with the, what's left of the aristocratic class. Maybe he's over with the priest. Maybe he's sitting at the foot of Jeremiah listening to his prophecies and teaching. He's a little kid who just a little bit later is going to be carried captive into Babylon. And he's going to grow up to become a dude named Daniel. Who while he's in Babylon is able to say, you know, remember all those prophecies that Jeremiah gave? Maybe he had them read to him in Babylon. We don't know. But you remember all those prophecies? Here's what they mean. In 70 years, some of us are going home. There was another guy. He was up on the wall. He was a rent-a-cop. He worked for Securitas of Jerusalem. He stood up on the wall of Jerusalem and looked out and made sure. See what was going on. These Babylonians have us surrounded. His name was Habakkuk. The same time Jeremiah's down in the city, Habakkuk is up on the wall. And he has a question, and there aren't too many people willing to talk about it, so he goes and talks to the last person he's got. He talks to God. And in his book, that minor prophet, minor not because of significance, but because of size, you have bold, you have bold print words that separate sections of scripture that's called a pericope pericope let's say that together that's a fun word to say let's say pericope pericope it sounds like pericope it rhymes with pericope i got nothing else on that the first pericope in habakkuk after habakkuk 1 1 says habakkuk's complaint Wow, can you imagine a complaint that he has against God? You know what? God's not afraid. He's not scared of your complaint. He's not scared of your questions. You better ask him with respect, and you really better be ready for the answer. He can take what you have to ask. But we need to be ready to hear what he has to say in response. Amen? And Habakkuk's complaint, he comes to same time Jeremiah's down in town, he's up on the wall, and he says, God, now look, I know you're busy. I know you've got this whole Pluto thing going on. Is it a planet or is it just a ball of gas? And I know that's, but listen, I know you're not aware of this. This is basically his first complaint. I know you're not aware of this, but holy moly, these people have your people surrounded. Just thought I'd FYI you on that one. God answers his complaint. That's what God does when we come to him with questions. He answers his complaint and says, not only do I know they are there, but I'm the one who sent them. And there's another pericope between verses 11 and 12 where it says Habakkuk's second complaint. And in that section of Scripture is when Habakkuk looks at God and says, What did you say? Not only, you know, you sent them? He's irritated, he's frustrated, he's offended at God. Because God knows that he's suffering. He knows the difficulties going on. But Habakkuk, unlike us, is not willing to use his difficulties as an excuse for laziness, an excuse for getting out of work. Habakkuk has integrity. So that in chapter 2, verse 1, he's asked the question, he's given the complaint. And he says, I will take my stand at my watch post. And I'll station myself on the tower. And I'll look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He didn't abandon his post. He knew there were people depending on him. And he went back to the job. He went back to work. And the beauty of Habakkuk's honesty and his respectful way of asking it is in Habakkuk 2, 2, when it says, and the Lord answered him. Friends, God's not afraid of our questions. We need to ask him with respect. Be ready for the answer. 
But when Habakkuk came to him with a second complaint, here was God's response. Buckle up, because it's going to get worse. And it does. And what Habakkuk is hearing on the wall, Jeremiah is hearing the same thing down in town. And there's no record that Habakkuk was persecuted for it. But look there in Lamentations 3.52. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. Have you ever said that? Have you ever asked, what did I do to you? What are you mad at me about? What, what is your problem? Jeremiah has been hunted by people who are his enemies without cause. Have you been there? David has. David over in Psalm 69.4. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. I didn't do it. I didn't, I didn't do it. But I'm going to have to repay it. Oh, well. Okay. Friends, look at in verse 53. Lamentations 3.53. They flung me alive. This is what happens to Jeremiah. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Now, this is a weird sentence in Hebrew. The way this translates in Hebrew, in our understanding, is they flung me alive into a pit and they cast stones on me. This is a bad thing to have happen to you. And over in Jeremiah chapter 38, he talks about this incident. When they come to the king, King Zedekiah, and say, you know, Jeremiah's causing all kinds of trouble. We need to do something about this. And Zedekiah says, uh, Jeremiah 38.5, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. How's that? How's that for stately disorder? The king can do nothing against you. So, 38.6, they took Jeremiah. They cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son. It was a cistern in the courtyard of the guard's house. But since there was no water in the cistern, only mud, Jeremiah sank in the mud. How would you feel about that? How would you like knowing that you are the hated one in town? You have just been picked up and thrown into a pit that's full of mud. Now listen, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid and all those TV shows had the good guy falling into quicksand and he's slowly, slowly sinking, that scared the daylights out of me and you know you can still see Daniel Boone sinking singing mingo mingo till he's finally pulled out Jeremiah didn't have anybody to cry out to he's sinking in the mud and nobody cares until this dude named Ebed Melech he was an Ethiopian he was a black man and he came and said listen this isn't right what's being done here this isn't right king can I get him out of there and as Jeremiah's up to his armpits, up to his neck. How deep is he in this stuff? Ebed Melech lowers down ropes and claw, that are claws that have been tied together. That's all they have left. He says, put these under your arms. We'll pull you out of there. And he was pulled out, saved from death by muck. How would you feel? Would you be discouraged? <laughs> would you wonder if you should have taken up a different career? Would you quit? Jeremiah did. Jeremiah quit. Did you know that? Jeremiah quit. For 17 years, he quit. For 17 years, he told God, these people are nuts, and you are not nice for making me live here. For 17 years, he left the ministry. And how many preachers have I had called me on Sunday night say, I'm done, I'm quitting, I can't stand anymore, and I just talked to them and say, okay, that's fine, go ahead and quit tonight. Let's just get back to work tomorrow. I'm quitting. Oh, I'm with you. 
And you can't quit because I'm with you, and if you quit, I have to quit, and I ain't quitting, so you can't quit. Jeremiah quit. For 17 years he quit. And when Monday morning finally came for Jeremiah 17 years later, he had a very honest conversation with God. And listen, I love this. I love the honesty of the Bible. I love the honesty. I did a study one time on when prophets resign. Nine prophets that we can identify easily either resigned, fired, or tendered their resignation. And Jeremiah is one of them. And he comes to God in chapter 20, Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. He says, oh, Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. You got me there. That's a good one. I love that verse. You deceived me. I was deceived. God's going, I didn't deceive nobody. If you're not listening to what I say at the beginning, really, how is that my fault? If you choose to listen to the, teacher, the, the preachers on midnight television over what I said to you, sorry, not my fault. Because God had told him. In Jeremiah chapter 1, here's the call. I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to pluck up. You're going to break down. You're going to destroy. You're going to overthrow how does that sound for a job description? Some of us are going, well, I'm mad enough. That'd be great, man. Let me add it. I'll break down. You know what? Bitterness only lasts so long. And at some point, you've got to see something going in that's good. And four things are here. We bought a house in Pera one years ago. When we bought it, it had been built in the 1870s or something like that and had started falling down in the 1860s. And it was... And so we're tearing out, we're tearing out, we're tearing out. And I looked at Donna one day and said, I can't take it. This is killing me. i got to put something in here just to know that we're going somewhere. And so we have a picture uh, that uh, Jonathan said he found it. Yeah, there it is. Look at that. Robert had short hair, but he had hair, see? See? So it's all still all the same length, just in different places. But anyway, look, I, I had taken the floor up and we were putting And I said, I can't take any more tearing out. i gotta put, I got to put new two-by-fours in because the mildew in this old wood is driving me nuts. Jeremiah is told you're going to have a ministry of tearing down and destroying. and Man, how discouraging would that be? But then there are those last two, and to build and to plant. You know what he didn't say? He did not say you're going to reap. How many of you are tired of witnessing and not seeing any converts? How many of you understand that Keith Green song that said, I'm tired of planting seeds? And we look forward to the day when the sower overtakes the reaper. The reaper overtakes the sower. Well, that'll be a good day. It ain't now. God looked at him in chapter 1, Jeremiah chapter 1, and said, Look, it's going to be difficult, but here's what I want you to do. I Do not be dismayed by them. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. In other words, you get in front of those people, and you're scared to tell them. You look scared in front of them. I will give you something to be scared about. Don't you be dismayed by them. And after 17 years of being dismayed by them, after 17 years of being beat the Gehenna up, after 17 years of they tore my dick-dick-chick poster down off the wall, Jeremiah has been discouraged. And now he says, okay, chapter 20, verse 7, you're stronger than I am. You prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. And we look at that and go, snap out of it. Everyone mocks me. Wah, wah, wah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, grow up. Why don't you give it a shot for a day or two? 
Why don't you try what he's going through for a day or two, much less a lifetime with not one single convert. Let's see how you do. How many of you have gotten offended of God and decided, I'm done? If these children can't stop acting like three-year-olds, I'm quitting, said the disgruntled and former three-year-old teacher. Teacher of the three-year-olds. They're going to act like three-year-olds. I gave God a chance and he blew it. When I get to heaven, there's just some presumption right there. When I get to heaven, he has some things to answer to. Really? That's an actual quote. Actually told that. I'm struggling financially and I prayed and God said I don't have to pay tithes and offering, so I'm not going to. Actual quote. What happens when you get in the middle of a little bit of difficulty? We just quit. We just quit. I'm done. Friends, most of us can outlast God's conviction, but Jeremiah could not because in Jeremiah 20, he said, if, he said, I will not mention him. If I were to say, I'm not going to mention him, I'm not going to speak anymore in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. It's like fire in my bones. You remember last week when we read in Lamentations chapter 1, from on high he sent fire into my bones he made it descend. That's, that's what he's talking about. I've been sitting here for 17 years watching Oprah and things aren't getting better. And Jeremiah's just downright depressed. And if you've never been depressed in ministry, let me take you some places. I can take you some places today. We'll leave you there for a day or two, a year or two, a week or two. You'll come home depressed. Jeremiah looks at him and Jeremiah 20 says, Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon because he didn't kill me in the womb. And so my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever gracious. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? Now there's somebody for the midnight Zoloft and Wellbutrin ad. This dude, man, he is down. But here's what's fascinating to me. Here's what's fascinating to me about people who genuinely know God, people who have genuinely experienced, who have genuinely tasted the goodness of the Word of God, according to Hebrews chapter 6. They have genuinely experienced God. They have genuinely tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Now, there's, there's your mix of senses. They have tasted and they have seen. This is a full sensory application. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Here's, what, here's what's fascinating to me. Those who have genuinely experienced Him, have genuinely taken Him up on His offer in Isaiah chapter 1, come, let's reason together. Let's talk about this. The word for reason is the word argue. It's not what you had with your spouse on the way here this morning. It's the classical sense of the word. Present your argument. I'll present my argument. We'll act like adults if we're not going to act like Christians. There's an idea. Let's talk this thing through. God is the one who said, come, let's just talk it out. And for those who have genuinely taken him up on his offer, who have genuinely 
with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. What that word means is freedom to say all. We have freedom to say everything when we get into the presence of God. There are no limits. Let's just talk to him. That's his invitation. Friends, he's okay with our questions if we're okay with his answers. So we ask him, and we do what Jacob did over there in Genesis 32. We do not let him go unless you bless me. And we sit here and say, well, I asked God a question, and he didn't answer me. So, made me mad, and when the advertisement was over, I unmuted my television. Well, didn't you wait a long time? Man, some of those ads are a full 30 seconds now. What? A Friends, there, have been, there are questions I've been asking him for decades. Some of them he's answered. Some of them he hadn't. But you know what? Just the having the conversation. Just the having the conversation has brought so much peace. And some of them he won't answer for decades, and that's okay. It's an ongoing conversation. Friends, it really does take a lifetime to make a man of God. We can't get, we can't get worn out in this thing before the end of the race. You know what? If you don't quit, you might win. If you quit, you won't win the race. But if you don't quit, at least there's a chance. Amen? And how many of us have looked at God and said, well, you let me down. Really? That's what we want to go with? Friends, for those who have genuinely sought the Lord, even in the middle of their distress, there is still worship. Even in the middle of distress, in the belly of the fish, Jonah said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, out of the belly of hell I cried, and you heard my voice. How many of you have been there? How many of you have been at the very bottom, and you cry to God, oh, he heard me. Jonah chapter 2, verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And Jonah was reminded of what one of my mentors called the theme of the Bible, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord, and he was rescued. And friends, from the heights of the wall looking down on the Babylonians who are there to destroy him. Habakkuk, who has had these complaints against God, he even in the middle of the difficulty, he was still able to say, here's my resolve. If the fig tree never blossoms, if there's fruit never on the vine, the produce of the olive fails and yield, the fields yield no food, if the flock is cut off from the fold and there's no herd in the stalls, here's my resolve, I will still rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Because God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And friends, whether you're surrounded by the Babylonians or the bumbling nincompoops at your work, we can still say in Jeremiah 20, 13, sing to the Lord. In the middle of his distress, in the middle of 17 years of I'm done with it, God, he said, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, because he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. In the middle of our lamentations about the terrible things we have seen, Chapters 1 and 2 were a bummer. And the 
bad things we're going to see. Chapters 4 and 5 really are not fun, but in the middle of them. Lamentations 3.17. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. You ever been there? I have no hope left. It's old Stephen Taylor song. I feel so much better since I gave up hope. It's in the middle of those lamentations that we can still cry out in verse 21. I'm going to call this to mind. I remember this, and therefore, I have hope. Here's what I remember. Here's what gives me hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. They never come to an end. Great is thy faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. Friends, in the middle of all of the devastation of one and two, four and five, in the middle of eating baby entrails for lunch, in the middle of all of the suffering that has been done to him, the beatings, the burning of his work, the thrown into pits. Everything's been done to Jeremiah. He says, Here, here's just something I'm going to call to mind. And this has given me hope. The steadfast love of the Lord. His mercies are new every morning. Think about that. How old are you? How many days is that? However old you are times 365 and then a few for leap years and all that jazz. And new mercies. New mercies every morning. Every morning. Now, not just for you. But think about everyone who has ever followed God in the history of the world. Every one of them has woken up every morning with new mercies. Not, not just one, but multiple of them. And what about new mercies for every person that's ever lived? Imagine that. New mercies every morning, and God never duplicates a one of them. He didn't look at you and say, hey, punch that dude next to you, give me your mercies from yesterday. That's old worn out. Yeah, he'll get some out of them. Donna said when she was a kid, they used to, church would take off an offering for the missionaries and they'd put used tea bags in there because those missionaries can get one more cup of tea out of there. How's that for a mercy? You want one of those? No. His mercies are new every morning. And for that reason, if no other, we can declare in verse 24, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. My hope has died. I have no happiness it's forgotten. My endurance has perished. But here's the reality. The Lord is my portion. And because of that, I will hope in Him. Friends, when we learn to take responsibility for what we've done, it's a good day. Look there in verse 27. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. You know, if every now and then it's a good thing to just sit back and say, I did it. This past week I was sitting with someone younger than me and Going through difficulty, and I got to share with them some of my stupidity from when I was when I was young. And it's like, man, that's a yoke. Dear God, you forgave me for that? How can you stand being around me? But I'll hope in him. And it's good to bear that yoke. It's good to be reminded God has forgiven us of so much. He was right to ask in verse 39, why should a living man complain? You realize there are a lot of folks that are dead that... They don't have the right to complain because of their own sin and foolishness. Why should a living man complain? Here's an idea. Complain about the punishment? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. How's that for weird and wild? And our hope is the Lord includes that even in the middle of punishment, for things that 
it is time we finally take responsibility for that there is still the realization and the truth. Verse 31, that the Lord will not cast off forever. That though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. He will not cast off forever. Jeremiah is saying, look, I know I've prophesied terrible things in those first two poems, and there are terrible things coming in the last two. But in this poem, here's what I did. Verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord. From the depths of the pit you heard my plea, and here was my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. God can't fail. And friends, what did God say to him when he was at the bottom of that cistern sinking in mud? What did he say to John the Baptist when, when he was in prison for having stood up in John 1, 29, seeing Jesus come over the hill and said, look at that there, right there. Behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. He said, we'll get you for that, and they killed him. What did Jesus tell John the Baptist then? What did he say to that, that theologian, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century? As he's walking to the gallows to be hung by a piano wire until he's unconscious and then brought back to consciousness and hung again and back and forth. What did Dietrich Bonhoeffer say when he's being tormented because he stood up and said, you know, Hitler's not a nice guy. He found his bunk after they liberated that prison camp. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, had scratched into his bunk, I do not know if God exists. But if he does, he loves me, and he knows where I am. And what did he say when the economic downturn was looking bad for the nation's economy, or your business's economy, or your, your own personal economy? What did he say when shame, guilt, and fear that you could not snap out of, that you did not know the origin of, had left you a ball of paralysis in a corner? What did he say? What did he say to Jeremiah? Lean over when Jeremiah said, Dear God, he said to him in verse 57, Jeremiah said, You came near when I called on you. And here's what you said. Do not fear. What? That's the best you've got? Do not fear? That's what I said. Do not fear. Because more than any other promise in the Bible, Joshua 1.9, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41, fear not, because I'm with you. Matthew 28, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And there comes a time with the maturity of Paul when he's finally able to say, I am certain of this one thing, that neither death nor life Angels are rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height or depth. Nothing in all of creation is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I started doing this a long time ago. I'm 16 years old when I started preaching, which is just about old enough to be stupid. I couldn't have said that then couldn't say that then. I've been doing it long enough to be able to say, he has been faithful in the midst.
middle of all of the yoke that he has placed on my shoulders because of the foolishness I've done. In the, in, in the middle of all of the invitation to just repent, just come home. He has still been faithful. And all of the times he's come through in the past, I don't have to worry about things that are present. I don't have to worry about things that are to come. Because nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Jesus. Not even the discipline that we occasionally have to go through. Because friends, Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises every son who he receives. If you're being disciplined, it's a sign he loves you. He cares about you. Here, here's some options. We can respond to this discipline three ways. Hebrews 12, 5, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. We can look at it and say, oh, it's no big deal. Into every, life, into every life a little rain must fall. It's just life. Don't take it lightly. Verse 5 again. Don't be weary when reproved by him. Don't, don't, don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop just because I'm sick of it. I get it. But here's the third option. Verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Just got four and five coming next week. It's tough. But this is discipline. You're going to make it. Friends, if you're experiencing the discipline of the Lord right now, would you be willing to invite him to deal with every issue that he knows is ready to be dealt with now? Would you be willing to just be honest with him and say, Dear God, I've despised your discipline. I have accused you of being an unloving father because of the very discipline that I deserve. I've made light of it. I've gotten tired, grown weary in it. But God, today, here's my determination. I'm going to endure this discipline, knowing that you only discipline the ones you love. Father, in agreement with your word, I confess that you only, Hebrews 12, 10, discipline us for our good, that we may share in your holiness. Dear God, please make me holy. A.W. Tozier said, if I have to choose between happiness and holiness, give me holiness. I have all eternity to be happy. God, we agree with that promise. Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Fix our eyes on what's after that. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When Jesus stood there looking at the cross, he said, this looks terrible. Dear God, is there any way, any other way? If there's any other way, let's give it a shot. And then he leaned over. Oh, wait, look on the other side. Look, look on the other side of it. And so, for the joy set before him, near the cross. Friends, would you be willing to look at Jesus and say, look, I have despised the discipline. I've grown weary. I've made light of it. But dear God, please, by your discipline, would you yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness in my life as I submit to your training? God, I want peace. I want fruit. Give me righteousness as I submit. Let's pray. Dear God, there's some of us in this room this morning that God, the temptation to quit, man, is so real. look at it I don't know where my hope is 
leaving fast. God, would you please minister to them, each one of us, in terms that are meaningful to us. Would you please, God, as we cry to you, just like you did with Jeremiah, would you lean over and just whisper in her ear. And God, help us to hear you say, fear not. Most frequent command in the Bible, fear not. Because of the most frequent promise in the Bible, I'm with you. Dear God, even in the mud, even when getting beat up, even when in the jail cell waiting to have my head lobbed off, I'm still with you. God, please speak to each ear. Cause us to hear your voice that says, fear not, fear not, I'm with you. Now look, you got some things to deal with, let's just deal with it. Come on home, come on home, let's just talk about it. It's all going to be okay if you'll just come home and be repentant. God, thank you for repentance. It's not a hard thing, it's your good gift. It is your good gift to us because it is the means by which you look at us and say, come back into my presence. God, thank you for the gift of repentance. Father, may we use that gift today in Jesus' name. If you're here this morning, you've got stuff you're dealing with, that you know that God's saying, look, let's deal with this thing. I want you just right now, just, just look at him and say, God, I did it, and I'm sorry. You're right, I did it, and I'm sorry. Where you are, standing where you are, at your chair, up here at the altar with somebody praying, wouldn't you like, wouldn't you like to be able to go home and say, tonight, I'm getting a good night's sleep. If you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, you'd like to know more about what God's Word, the Bible, has to say about how you can become a Christian, let us share with you. We have folks standing around who are glad to pray with you. We'll be glad to share with you what God's Word, the Bible, has to say about how you can be forgiven. Friends, every one of us is so easy to make light of, to get weary in, to, to quit in the middle of discipline. Would you be willing to say today, I'm not quitting. Dear God, please do a complete work in me. Let's stand together and sing this. One thing.